This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have on a guest that I've been dying to have on for some time. She's a teacher of the classics, and she actually taught in the classics department at Howard University and is the host of the wonderful new podcast, Cush Classics. Dr. Anika Prather is here with us, and we're going to talk about what else? The classics, or more specifically, how to think about Athens from the perspective of Jerusalem. So this week is the beginning of the fifth month in the biblical calendar. And so for readers of the Bible, the fifth month is of enormous and terrible significance. It's the month during which the forces of the Babylonian Empire swept into Jerusalem, sacked the city, destroyed God's temple, and the books of Jeremiah and Kings. Yeah, they knew the fifth month as a time of tragedy. The prophet Zechariah over 2,500 years ago talked about it as a time of fasting, which is a practice that we still observe to this very day. Now, the reason I mention this is because we know that the fifth month again became a time of tragedy later in history because the temple at Jerusalem was rebuilt, but in the Roman era, it was destroyed once again, and once again, it was destroyed in the fifth month. Now, I've always thought about this second destruction as one of the most significant moments actually in world history, because the destruction of the second temple was the result of a conflict between Jerusalem and Rome, between biblical civilization and classical civilization, a clash that had been brewing for quite some time and the reverberations of which we still feel today. And it's in this tension that our culture today, call it Western culture or call it whatever you want, was born. And at the heart of the American experiment, in fact, is this attempt, sometimes ham-handed, other times inspiring, to bring the political legacies of Jerusalem and Athens into conversation. And some of our greatest thinkers, from John Adams to Frederick Douglass to Sojourner Truth, were steeped in both. Now, Americans have come through a several-decade-long period now of forgetting. We've treated tradition, whether it's Aristotle or Deuteronomy, as unfashionable or hindrances to our happiness and liberation, rather than the sources of wisdom and identity and the very soil in which our liberties have always been grounded. But today, as American loneliness reaches epidemic proportions and the hunger for community, for belonging, for something to hold on to other than, you know, like empty self-creation becomes more and more apparent, I think it's absolutely urgent that we revisit the question of what both Athens and Jerusalem have to teach us and maybe even how we can learn from their disagreements. So to unpack all of this, I brought on one of the most impressive and passionate voices for these dual legacies on the American scene today. She's an advocate for the classics. She taught classics at the prestigious Howard University, is the host of the new Cush Classics podcast, which is amazing. You should all listen to it. And is the founder of the Living Water School. And she's a rock star on Twitter. She's Dr. Anika Prather. Anika, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So, Howard University is the nation's only historically black university with a classics department, or it was, but about a month or two ago, it went ahead and eliminated it. And you were a really prominent voice of caution, of protest. And so I know you've talked about this on a bunch of podcasts already, but really quickly, can you say a little bit about the importance of classics to you and to the wider Howard community at large? Yes. And as I go into it, I want to say that when I left, the conversation was, 
it's going to wean away or they're going to restructure it so it is a module or a program within a larger department or it would be completely weaned away with the tenured professors being placed in other departments throughout the university, still teaching within their training or what have you, but it would become just kind of integrated into the curriculum as opposed to a center of classical learning on the campus. And I wanted to clarify all of that. So, cause people are saying, well, they're still going to do some type of classes. They're still going to be taking these classes. Why were you trying to save the department? It's more financially wise because there were no majors. There were only minors. There were not a lot of people coming through the department. So logically on paper, it made sense to do something different with it from a business perspective. I think the reason why I joined in with the students to preserve the department as it was is because of the historic nature of the classics department. As you said before, it's the first and only HBCU with a classics department that's still in existence. Now, Howard University was founded by a man by the name of Oliver Howard. He was also a Union soldier, really active in the abolitionist movement. And he was also the head of the Freedmen's Bureau, which made sure the newly freed people got land so they could start their life over again with owning their own land. It also set up schools. And Oliver Howard was the head of that department, the Freedmen's Bureau. And they would set up schools. So they also were responsible for helping set up St. Augustine's normal school, which today is St. Augustine's College or University. If you look at the story of Anna Julia Cooper and others who went to St. Augustine's, they had a classical education. They learned Latin and Greek and they read all of the classic texts. And so Howard was founded with a classics department following that same tradition. And so if you look at the history of a lot of the HBCUs, they all started being classically inspired. Classics was a part of the curriculum. But as Booker T. Washington became more popular, let's focus more on them getting training for good careers, architecture, veterinary medicine, engineering, and so on and so forth. It wasn't as popular to nurture the intellectual, the classics as a part of Black education. As Booker T. Washington became embraced by Blacks and whites, those who supported Black studying classics became less, less popular. And so schools, HBCUs especially, began to kind of go away from the classical tradition. Well, Howard is unique in that it maintained its classical tradition since 1867. I just thought that was really powerful, that no matter what the trend was doing, no matter what other HBCUs were doing, no matter what the society said, how it was like, we're going to have a classics department. And you kind of see this battle to keep it up. It's always come up on the table. And so here we are now. I mean, it looks like it's a good chance that something's going to happen where we, the classics department, as we know it, will be no more. My sadness is this is kind of like a, a national treasure. It is a symbol of early Black education. It is a preservation of our history. So if slavery ended in 1865 and Howard University was founded with a classics department in 1867, along with St. Augustine's College and some other HBCUs, Howard being the first, of course, it represents us understanding what kind of education did our ancestors have before today? And what kind of education did Martin Luther King have or Thurgood Marshall have or our moms and dads have or grandparents have before desegregation? Howard's classics department is like a museum to that, an altar of remembrance to that early education of Black people. To me, it felt like someone tearing down the African-American Museum, you know, like or the National Monument, mm. all of those things that we need to remember from whence we've come 
And so that was my heart behind trying to preserve it. And as a teacher of classic, and you actually written about this in, in a wonderful book that you published, you've had the experience of seeing classical education transform your students. So can you can you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like? Oh, it was incredible. I came to understand its relevance before I came to understand its relevance. <laughs> what I mean by that is... <laughs> that basically me, describes everything I learned. <laughs> it was more so an emotional thing first. I didn't understand its history. I didn't even understand the history of classics at Howard at that time. As soon as I started reading it, my parents were really into classical education for Black people, and I thought they were crazy. And then I somehow stumbled into teaching great books at their school And as soon as I began to read them to prepare my lessons, I began to say, wow, I've been so wrong about these texts. And they began to transform me. They began to heal my heart of bitterness because I had endured a lot of racism. And I began to see this human story unfold that connects us all. And then it really became solidified when my experience, I began to see in my students as they read them. This emotional, mental, soul change happened in students. As one student said in my dissertation, these books tell all of our stories. I feel like they are identifying with whatever I'm going through. And when we say classical education, I also want to clarify, K-12 classical education includes reading classics as well as all the works of the Western canon, not just ancient Greece and Rome. Sure. In universities or academia, when we say classics, we mean mainly the study of ancient Greece and Rome and everything that intersects there. So as my students began to read these texts, you began to see them go through the process of thinking more about their worldview. They became more willing to listen to people who think differently than they do, as opposed to getting angry or wanting to fight and argue about it. And Susan Weisbauer, who wrote The Well-Trained Mind, which I really believe any educator, especially those in classical, needs to read it, she calls the canon rhetoric and action. That's such a powerful statement to me. It's one of my most favorite ones because when students read it, they go through what Frederick Douglass went through, reading it and seeing the reason and the logic interchanging and doing this kind of song and dance together. And then it begins to come into your spirit and you begin to think like that. So I began to see my students go through that process. The transformation was really incredible. And so I saw that first before I knew about its history in the Black community. And so what really, really grabbed my heart is when I'm analyzing what's going on with my students and then say, I read the story of Frederick Douglass. I'm saying here he is an enslaved boy with no hope, 12, 13 years old, being introduced to Cicero and literally going through the same thing and verbalizes what my students said they're going through in the early 2000s. Wow. And that's when I became really conscious of the power and the importance of reading the text. So it's interesting because when I think of the role that classical education plays, you know, when it first becomes popular, just as universities are becoming a thing in the early modern era, you know, it's really like a ticket to the upper class in a sense, right? So like the merchants in Genoa are reading Cicero and writing to their, you know, contacts in Provence in classical Greek and Latin because it's a way to kind of show that they're trustworthy, they speak the same language. So it's kind of a ticket, you know, out of the masses or out of humanity or above humanity. Whereas in the life of Frederick Douglass, for yes. example, it's the opposite. It's a way to bring you back to humanity, to, yes. to bring you into humanity. It's a way to say, listen, you know, this life I've been leading where everybody around me is telling me I'm not worth anything. I'm worth less. I'm yes. so, this is a way to bring you back. So it actually plays the opposite role in this tradition than it does yeah. than it does elsewhere, right? That's such an important point you're making. And I think that first point you made is what has made people resist it. 
because there are two things that have happened historically. Right, that was where I wanted to go, yeah. In the Black community. Let's talk about the Black community with that. So you had like Du Bois, of course, people have accused him of being elitist. And Alan Locke, people have accused him of looking down at people who maybe did not have that classical training. And even my own family, you see it, Black people, you know, we tend to get really proud of the fact that we are reading some work of the canon and can understand it and, you know, kind of set ourselves apart from others. My favorite educator, Anna Julia Cooper, she awakened me to what you're saying, that are these texts supposed to set us apart as somehow higher or better than someone else? And so Black people get upset because that division of I'm smart, you're not, you know, I'm of this class because I've read these texts and can speak this Latin. And then white people have used it to say, this is for us. This is our heritage. This is not your, you're not smart enough to understand these texts. So the texts themselves have been used as some sort of a a weapon against class, against skin color. And so that has also contributed to where we are today. But in us paying so much attention to those who've misused the texts, we have failed to look at those who have used them properly, which is, as you said, such as Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King or Anna Julia Cooper or all the great liberators in our history. And I know I feel like I say that a lot. I keep repeating it on Twitter and on podcasts because I'm trying to call to remembrance to everyone who will hear me, get your minds off of those who misuse the text, whether they were racist or whether they were a Black elitist. That is not where our attention should be because if we only focus on this, we miss the whole story. And the story is how those texts called to our remembrance that we are human, not because we can read a classic text, but because we can read those texts and see stories that we can identify with. This is actually why I was so excited to speak with you because, you know, I always tell people I'm like one of those religious fanatics you read about in books that you see on TV, you know, like <laughs> I'm an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, all the yeah. things that everybody else thinks is crazy. Be like, I believe those things, right? Yes. So I'm super proud of it. So, One like weird or funny thing that I kept seeing in the debate over classics as the whole situation at Howard was heating up was that there seemed to be two sides or it seemed to be set up kind of as a binary. Mm -hmm. Like either, as you just said now, the classics are set up as sort of like this elitist tool that reinforces class divisions and racial divisions. Right. So that's one side. Yes. So the classics have nothing to do with the black experience or maybe they're antithetical to the black experience. And the other side is no, 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 no. We can actually stake a claim to the classics as a black community. Now, I'm coming at this from a totally different perspective, because as a member of the Jewish people and the Jewish community, the way that I kind of look at it is we have this very long and complicated experience with classical civilization. Yes. Right. So in Jewish history, the Greeks and the Romans are the villains. And we have this really long tradition of criticizing classical thought and Greek thought. Mm. It's Judah Halevi in the 12th century to Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, who just passed away in the 21st century, just this past year. And by the way, just like because this is my favorite story, I feel like this hasn't made it into the culture, but like (laughs) the holiday of Hanukkah made famous by Adam Sandler and so forth. um, (laughs) The villains of the story are not Greeks like from Athens, but sort of the descendants of Alexander's Hellenistic Empire, Alexander's, you know, so the way it gets kind of set up in Jewish culture, especially very traditional Jewish culture, is that, you know, Hanukkah is like the defeat of the Greeks. So, you know, I went to Yeshiva University, which is, you know, the premier Jewish university, at least outside the land of Israel. 
so one of the like legendary professors who was a major a major figure in the field of classics in general was this guy by the name of Louis Feldman okay. uh, of 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 blessed memory. He was an amazing, amazing teacher. He would teach the classrooms of like three people, but would enthrall them. Um, and every single year, and he was a you know a, a deeply pi- a deeply deeply pious Jew who also was a, you know a major classics scholar. Mm. And every year on Hanukkah. He would give so in Jewish tradition, a yard site is celebrating the anniversary of somebody's death, and it's an occasion of remembrance. So he would always give a yard site lecture for the Greeks on Hanukkah, you know, where we, he would remember the Greeks and talk about why they're valuable wow. and so on and so forth. So all of that is to say that I found this debate so interesting because I'm coming from this tradition where I can't believe you're talking about this right now. <laughs> we're like, you know, like the Greeks and Romans are our villains, and yet engaging with them is so much a part of our tradition because even if they're the villains, you want to have the best villains. I think some of the most uplifting, interesting, important achievements in Jewish wisdom come from engaging with the Greeks and Romans. They've been our best sparring partners for centuries, right? And that's <laughs> yeah. what you want, isn't it? Isn't that what you want? Right, right. And it also, the reason why it's interesting you're talking about this is because about two or three years ago, I started studying the connection between Judaism and Christianity. And I'm not sure where that's taking me, but not leaving Christianity, not leaving my faith. But like, well, I, that's, that's my field. I'm my, I got my I got my doctorate in that field. So, okay, <laughs> I'm so fascinated as well. Yeah. So like I, I, I do the Jewish readings every morning. Like, wow. so, so and I have a, a devotional that I use that follows the Jewish calendar and follows. Wow. And so this journey, <laughs> this is just wild that we're having this conversation because I thought I was by myself. But <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited because I've been really able to understand the relevancy of classics even more because of this, when I started this journey. And what I have found is like all the answers, if I look at the Jewish people and how they, I don't know if it's okay. If, if you, I guess Oh you my God, good, this is good faith ever. This is the podcast to like let it all out. Okay, good, because <laughs> it has allowed me also to explore CRT in a real historic context. Critical race theory. Critical race theory. Sure. And I read Jeremiah this morning. Oh my God, me too. That's crazy. Yes, I know because we're reading the same thing, <laughs> right? Because I was like, I want to get with the people where this all began. So anyway, so I'm reading Jeremiah and then I read Daniel, I guess a week or two ago. And so I was like, wait, Daniel, Jeremiah. Oh my gosh, they would totally understand critical race theory because the term hadn't been invented yet. But that whole concept of a dominant society ruling over another group of people creating laws and systems that are in their best interest and not in the interest of oh, the yeah. people who live in it. Now, I'm not a person who goes around and thinks it should be taught in schools and all that stuff, because I think putting something like that in the hands of a whole bunch of different people is just disastrous. But when people say, well, I don't agree with that. I'm like, I don't know how you can disagree with things that just happen in history. Like, it's just history. It's, <laughs> it's not really a debating point. It just is. And then understanding that truth is when we can say, if we don't want to be like that, how do we make sure we are not that? That's really what the discussion should be. You can't debate it. And so looking at the Jewish people, and I've been teaching my own children, once this light bulb went off, my own children, when we look at the children of Israel in Egypt, and we look at the children of Israel under Roman rule and all of that, I said the people got upset with Christ because he wasn't trying to tear down systems. He wasn't doing this political conversation. And he wasn't trying to be a zealot. He was just like, I love you and let's have peace and unity and come fellowship with me. Let's not be of this world. You know, sinful people create 
sinful systems. And so, but all of this understanding has come as a result of what you're talking about, studying Jewish history and studying what everything means according to the Jewish Bible and Christian Bible and things like that. And so when I read the scripture and I can see its connection with classic texts, the Jewish scriptures actually debunk immediately the theory that it's a white canon. Oh, my God. That's what this podcast is all about, baby. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just like, so why are we still using curriculum that shows it as not diverse? If that's not a diverse group of people, I don't know what is. You know, that's where it begins and that's where it intersects. And so that's our evidence. And when I brought this to light at Howard, I said, I'm not trying to make all of you all be religious. I just want to use a a text, an ancient text that can kind of illuminate what the world was like back then. So no matter what your high school teacher taught you, let me show you some truth. And I'm pointing to Jews and ancient African civilizations and just all the diverse people that are intersecting with Greece and Rome. And the students are like, whoa, so like classics really is not white. I said, it's not. I mean, I don't even think think Herodotus would say we're Western or we're white. You know, we're just people who intersect with each other. So Herodotus is actually a great place to to jump in here because the reason that, you know, I feel like Herodotus gets such a bad rap, especially from Thucydides, but, you know, Herodotus gets such a bad rap, oh, because he's making up stories. But the truth is, again, coming from Jerusalem to Athens, yes, I think one of the critical differences between classical and biblical civilization is classical civilization emphasizes systematic thinking, thinking in terms of categories, universals, whereas the Bible does the opposite move, right? So the Bible begins with a universal story, Adam, Eve, Noah is a story about the entire world. Um, Tower of Babel is a story about the entire world. Yes. But the Tower of Babel, right, is where the story begins to shift because that's kind of like the failure of a universal project. Yeah. Um, And then all of a sudden, Genesis 12, bam, you have the story of Abraham. Abraham's not like a symbol for humanity. Abraham's just a guy. He's not even (laughs) a very distinguished guy, right? Like the fame, like in Jewish tradition, like very famously, you know, one of the historic conundrums that Jewish thinkers have dealt with is that the Bible never ever once gives a reason why Abraham is chosen. Woo! Now, there are lots of answers. Now, one of my favorite answers is from a text called Pirke de Rebbe Eliezer. It's this sort of like ninth century um, rabbinic text, and it has the best answer. Now, the rabbis have so many different answers. They're all amazing and wonderful, but this one is my favorite because it says, actually, there was no reason. <laughs> it was done by a lottery. And the point was chosenness is not about superiority it's about responsibility and the reason i mention that is because that's the biblical way of thinking it's not about system it's about stories like everybody has their own story and relationship so this is where i feel like the tragedy of the direction that howard was going for me was that i think in almost any other kind of like elite academic context the classics are a symbol of bland universalism, Mm -hmm. right? It's sort of like, this is something that anybody could have a relationship with in any way. But Howard actually had almost a biblical take on the classics, which is, right? Yes, yes, Like, it's our story. This is part of our story. Yes, they had the right perspective. Yes. So what I wonder is, is it important to kind of tell a story about how classics has to do with us, right? Yes, and they were the only voice to do that. Right, exactly. What people don't understand is everything in our world is rooted in understanding these ancient texts. People keep thinking about them as something over there. 
And I blame K-12 schools for this. And I'm sorry if you're a public school leader and educator, please don't be offended at what I'm saying. We've gotten away from our roots. And the canon is an organized way to get a sense of our roots. And we can fill in the holes, kind of like what we're doing right now. The people who've even coined the concept of a canon, of course, may not have been thinking about Black people or Jewish people, but they obviously didn't read them very well because they collected all these texts and they tell our story. Like we can go straight to them and know about African civilizations. We can know about Judaism. We can know about Christianity. We can talk about the Ethiopian eunuch headed into Jerusalem. And we can understand that Queen Candace sent him. And who is Queen Candace? She's the empress from Ethiopia or the land of Cush. And I can take that and I can go read Herodotus or Plutarch or anyone else and understand more about, well, who was this Queen Candace? Who were these Cushites or who were these Ethiopians? We can learn that the Egyptians were not the Egyptians that we see today. We can understand that African civilization spanned the entire continent. So there was North, South, East, or West Africa. There was no light-skinned African or Black African or Sub-Saharan Africa. Like, that wasn't even there. All the lines that we have created, that the Middle Passage and colonialism has created for us today, did not exist. So that's important to understand. Because if we continue to teach and live and think and see history in the context of our racial experiences, we will keep misunderstanding our roots. The beauty of classics going back to ancient Greece and Rome and talking about the Bible. Matter of fact, the other day I was reading the Quran and saw a part about the fall of Rome. And so I'm connecting that with another text I read from Herodotus on Cyrus the Great. And, you know, and so all of this is working together. So what I'm coming to feel like is by us constantly rejecting my brother, who's a pastor, says it's an attack on truth. It's not an attack on classics. It's an attack on truth that even humanity does not understand that this fight to be more culturally relevant or to disrupt texts is not rooted in doing what's best for diverse people. It's removing truth from people, Mm. the truth of where we have come from and what human relationships really were supposed to look like. We've all been negatively affected, horribly affected by racism, enslavement, colonialism. We've all been affected by that. And we're living in this false narrative as a result. What classical studies does is it rescues us from that. Mm. We get to see what we were supposed to be. People say, well, it wasn't a perfect place. There was slavery. Yes, there was slavery. I'm not talking about that. When you read the story of the Ethiopian eunuch leaving Ethiopia to come into Jerusalem, that's a biblical text. Okay, there's an old pastor that says, put a quarter in the meter right there. Okay, leave that there for a minute. If you go and look at how Herodotus wrote his histories, what he did was he went from Greece to Africa then to the Middle East, then up to Turkey, and then back to Greece, something like that. Now put a quarter in a meter right there. So we have examples of what life was like. There was no, I don't go to this neighborhood. I don't go to this continent. I don't talk to these people. There was no issue with people leaving one country and going to another to go do something, to go buy something, to go share some type of wisdom. And then one more example is if you look at the arts, like weaving and spinning yarn and making fabric, You can see civilizations would travel and share that knowledge with each other. And so I'm not saying that there was nothing bad about the ancient times. It's just that the human relationships were very different than the color line relationships that we have right now. And so going back to that time, we get a sense of... There are different ways of being. Yes, yes. Wow. So I kind of want to look forward to a question about solution, 
So here's how I think about it. I see, and it's not just Howard, you know, this is just in the news. Princeton is eliminating their classical language requirement. And, you know, there was like a whole kerfuffle about how, oh, it has to do with racism. The truth is, if you just read the press releases, it didn't. It was much more practical than that. It was like people don't want to invest the time to learn the languages. Now, why not? From my vantage point, I feel like your average American is kind of looking at this and saying, well, of course, who wants to learn languages nowadays? From my perspective, I am very blessed to have grown up in a community where studying ancient language is considered like a prerequisite to being a part of the community. So like in a couple hours, my amazing daughters are going to come home (laughs) and they're going to read the Bible in Hebrew like they do every night. And they're going to be so proud of it and they're going to tell me what they learned. And the question is, why is that? And I suspect, and I I really want to get your take on this, but I'll give you my suspicion. Yes. My suspicion is that the difference ultimately between Athens and Jerusalem is that Athens had admirers, but Jerusalem had children. Mm. And the question that we have to answer is like, if you're going to create sustainable and flourishing interest in old ways of being or, or just different ways of being, like you need it to be part of a story. You need it to be part of a community yeah. that has rituals, that has family time. And I feel like the classical civilization never got its act together. I feel like maybe the Howard community is kind of one of the few places that could have nurtured that because yes. classics wasn't just this universalist abstraction. It was really a part of the history. It right? is. Yeah. So how do you diagnose the problem? How do you think about a, a solution? Well, you just said it. The children are the solution and a child shall lead them, right? Beautiful. So that's why I have so much focus on K-12 classical education. Right. And you're a pioneer in this field. You founded a school. I would love you to talk about that. Yeah. Well, it's my parents and they're still with us. And I like to always have them with me when I talk or to mention them because they started a classical school back when I had just finished my second master's in theater. And, And when I finished, they asked me to teach. I said no. I felt like most people feel today about classics and I'm long story short, you know, they convinced me to do it. I still didn't agree with classical education for black people at the time, but I ended up teaching the great books class and that's how I became such an advocate for it. And so they struggled so hard to keep it open because it was so hard to convince people, but they didn't understand. And I didn't understand at the time, the history of classics in the black community. So some years passed, I got married, had kids, and I thought I was done with that. And God called me back to open up another classical school. But this time I teach, I talk about its relevancy to us, to our community, its history in our community. And they may not even realize they know it, but they see its relevance. So a parent will say, my child's vocabulary, his spelling is better because he knows Latin, he's learning Latin. Mm. And so the children love Latin. I have students now who are saying, I'm never leaving because I don't want to go someplace that won't teach me Latin because they're seeing it around them. They're seeing it as, a, as a, a tool to help them navigate society. Latin helps them understand how English is written, the grammar and composition of it all. And so another part of classical education says, we give our students the building blocks of language and literacy. Wow. Outside of that, you're just doing rote information. Just remember that a period goes here. Just remember that this is subject-verb agreement. When you learn classically, you're learning the philosophy behind the English language and why it's set up the way it is. So like my sons have never really had a formal English class, but they know how to write paragraphs and essays and where to put periods in their 9 and 11. And that's because we're constantly immersed in this building of building blocks that's done classically through Latin Latin is so foundational for how we speak, how we write, all of that. So our hope 
It's two things. Our hope to preserve the classics is to really support classical education, but making sure classical education doesn't make the same mistake that has been happening over the centuries where people of color do not see themselves in the narrative in that K-12 classroom. That is all about protecting the Western tradition. That should not be classical education. And in fact, the authors of the classics would not have said we are the Western tradition. They were just like, we're people. (laughs) We're humans. (laughs) And we're just talking about what's going on in the human life. That's why Herodotus was like, and then I went over and I met with these people and this is what the Ethiopians did and this is what the Babylonians did. You know, so he was talking about what he was seeing in people's lives. Beautiful. And so when we teach classical education in that way, that all of these are the narrative of humanity, then we raise up a generation of people that understand the relevancy of classical studies. Beautiful. That's where I see the fixing of the issue. And then what happens is they graduate to go to 12th grade. Then they go what? Into colleges. And they'll go into philosophy and classics or different fields with this understanding that hopefully can preserve it properly. (laughs) Right, right. So last question is, can you talk a little bit about your new podcast? You have a new podcast, Kush Classics. So tell us a little bit about it. Okay, so Kush Classics, the name Kush, I grew up learning about African civilizations. My parents also had a camp. They ran for 20 years where Black kids could come learn about ancient African civilizations. Wow. And uh, it was called Camp Kush. Wow. (laughs) And, um, And so as I began to unpack this relevancy of the ancient African civilizations, And I learned that from studying the Holy Scriptures and then seeing it in the classic text. I was like, Kush Classics is the name in honor of the the camp my parents ran. And I was a camp counselor there. It started when I was six and I came up through it, graduated from it, and then became a counselor. My brother and I both did. My goal is to talk about ancient African civilizations in relation to classics, to talk about classics and its relevancy to the Black community, the history of classical education in the Black community. My first episode was about just an introduction to my journey and how I got to this place. And my second episode is about the history of classics at Howard and the history of classics at HBCUs. And that's what this episode is is now. That is amazing. So everybody, give it a listen. Give a follow on Twitter, Dr. Anika Prather. Thank you so much for being here. And then one more thing, too. My school was a brick-and-mortar school, but we have now, because there's been such a a desire for it to reach others, we are now online, and we will remain online. So if you're interested in a diverse classical education for your first through 12th grader, check us out, too. Unbelievable. Thank you so much for being on. This is amazing. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Jerusalem and Athens, Athens and Jerusalem. Can the two coexist? I think many people nowadays, after decades trending in this direction, have convinced themselves that they don't need either. But this collective forgetting has dire consequences because the very liberties and cultural richness we cherish have come from deep engagement with, and even arguments between, the traditions of these two transformative civilizations. But honestly, that's why I thank God that America makes so much space for diverse communities, because so often it's precisely those minority communities or communities outside of the mainstream, the traditional Jewish community, the black community, that know how important it is to remember and not forget the ancient wisdom and yes, faith that got us here in the first place. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me today. And if you enjoyed what you heard, then Tell you what, give us a five-star ratings on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do, and if you review us on iTunes, let me know on Twitter so I can let the world know how awesome you are. 
Okay, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.